0: Good morning. I'd like to welcome you all out this morning, especially our visitors. It is so, so wonderful to have you with us. I hope you, you understand that you are very important to us. We're honored to have you with us. And, and if you would, stick around for just a little bit after services. Let us get to know you, uh, even though we know you already. Let us to catch up and find out what's going on in your life and have time to, to spend together. <laughs> I'm also very excited to see all those that, are, that have not been here in a little while, due to, to sicknesses and healths. It's so wonderful to see those that are feeling better, that God's hand has been working in our lives. He has healed those that have needed His health. He has been, been with them. And, and that is just such an encouragement to me, to see each and every one of you all with us. If you would go ahead and open up your Bibles, and turn them to the book of Proverbs. <clears throat> to, the, to the book of Proverbs, we're going to start in Proverbs here just a little bit. While you're turning there, I like to say that as thrilled as I am to see you here this morning, I I am equally thrilled to have the opportunity to just simply be here. You know, I, I thought and thought about how I wanted to phrase what I wanted to say this morning, and and I just poured over this idea so long that I, my head was spinning. And then Brother Joe got up and let a said some words that just put everything that I was thinking right into and into aspect, and I think I'm just going to quote him. We have been so, so very blessed in our country. We've been so very blessed in our lives. And if we have spent the last couple of days being thankful for that, I think we need to make sure that we're not so much thankful for the blessings, but thankful for where the blessings come from. And and uh, I thank Joe for, for saying the words that he did this morning. It certainly helped me out a lot. It stuck with me very well, and I hope that that, that sticks with you. As we have taken part in this holiday of thanksgiving we truly are very blessed i I looked around at my family and at the material blessings and at this country and and so much that that we have but let us not forget where those blessings come from now a lot of people on this holiday they they do certain things that are that are a pretty big part of, of thanksgiving you know they they get together maybe on Thanksgiving morning, and they turn on the TV and watch the Macy's Day Parade. That's a pretty big part of Thanksgiving, isn't it, to watch the parade? And then, of course, you can't forget the meal. They have the, the turkey. It's hard to do without that. The cranberry sauce, I can definitely do without that. The uh, mashed potatoes and gravy, the dressing, all the things that go with Thanksgiving. Then afterwards, they, a lot of people sit down, they turn on the TV again, go back to the, to the TV and watch maybe the football game. Something's going on. This time that we spend together, it seems like in our society that really seems to be a big part of Thanksgiving, all these things. Another part that goes along with it is something I want to talk about this morning. Uh, As we've studied these topics over the last uh, several weeks, we've looked at things that are controversial, things that are going to be, that that face Christians today, and we've started off with things that are are not quite as controversial. Maybe we've talked about things that don't really raise a flag in people's eyes, uh, things like sexual immorality and and adultery, and things like homosexuality, and and marriage. We've talked about stuff like that. But the last couple of sermons, we've kind of got into some more controversial topics. A few weeks ago, we talked about gambling. A lot of people would kind of raise an eye at gambling. That's, That's something that faces us. It's an issue. Well, today we're going to continue in that trend. We're going to talk about another issue that many people sometimes raise an eye at. Because this morning we're going to talk about something that has constantly created tension in the U.S. and the world. But specifically in the U.S. for several several years. Back in the 1920s, this topic reached a a boiling point here. The country was gripped in a real problem. We were were stuck in this this cycle of gambling and, and drug addiction and alcohol abuse. These things were at record numbers for the country at this time. And so we have a group of progressive politicians and a group of of women uh, that, that start pushing for an 18th Amendment, which would mandate the prohibition of all sale, production, importation, and transportation of alcoholic beverages. Now today, as in years past, alcohol is just as big a problem as it was then, but it's accepted It's accepted by many in our society today. In fact, alcohol is looked at as just another drink. It's just as refreshing as a glass of lemonade. It's a, it goes hand-in-hand hand with a lot of our, past, uh, our, our sports and our pastimes. As I said, the sit down at the football, or watch the football game, a lot of men will crack open a beer. Or maybe it's just a part of our, our dining experience, a glass of wine with our, with our dinner. It's certainly a very accepted part of our society. So this might lead us to ask the question, is it really a big deal? Is alcohol really such a big deal? Surely most of the world has accepted it on many, many levels. But what does that mean for us as Christians? What does that mean, can we accept alcohol and its use? This morning, I really hope that we will lay aside all of our opinions on alcohol. That is not something I wish to do this morning, is to stir up our many different opinions of alcohol and rather look straight to the scriptures and make a judgment based off what they have to say for us. And so this morning, if you're in Proverbs, I'd like to start in Proverbs chapter 21. In Proverbs chapter 21, we're going to see what the Proverbs have to say about alcohol. Look in verse 17 with me. Verse 17, says, he who loves pleasure will be a poor man. And he who loves wine and oil will not be rich. This passage is telling us that alcohol very well leads to poverty. We have seen this throughout our lives. Maybe maybe it's not someone directly related to us. Maybe it's not someone directly in our family. We have all known of someone who has simply drank their money away. Maybe the paycheck comes in on Friday, and Saturday it's gone. Spent up at the bar and at the liquor store. We see people who have become so addicted to alcohol that they have had, been forced to file bankruptcy. Maybe because of spending all their money on it, maybe because they've had health issues related to it, accidents that, that required them to pay lawyers and insurances and all sorts of things. That, that now they, we see people that are on the streets and they're begging for money. And some of them are honest enough with you to tell you the truth. They say, Can I borrow $5 to buy a drink? Can I borrow some money to get another drink of alcohol? that should tell us something about alcohol. Someone whose life is in such despair, they don't have a place to sleep, don't have a house over their head, but they are willing to throw away the next $5 that they get, maybe the only money they have, just so they can have another drink. Alcohol leads us to make foolish decisions with our money leads us to make foolish decisions with our finances, it, and it very certainly can lead us into a situation of poverty. Now also, alcohol, in Proverbs 31, we're told that it's not for a certain type of people. It says it's not for the wise in Proverbs 31. So not only can it affect our finances, but it, it can affect whether or not our decisions are wise or foolish. In Proverbs 31, look over in verse 4. We're going to read verse 4 through 7. It says it is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink, drink excuse me. Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. These people that it talks about here, the kings, the princes, we can we kind of can understand why that would be something that. A person like that would want to abstain from alcohol. We see them as someone who is responsible for making good, wise decisions. They see them as someone who is going to be judged by the actions that they take, and they are going to influence others as well. A king going into battle would have a hard time mustering his troops to support him if he was constantly just sloshed and laying around, and and no one really knew what his plan was. Not very many people would want to trust their lives to that person. Let's follow him in the battle. He can't hardly walk. That's exactly the the kind of leader we're looking at. It makes perfect sense to us why, why a king should stay away from alcohol. But what about us as Christians? Are we not people who are responsible for our decisions? Are we not people who are going to be judged because of our actions? Are we not people who should be influencing others in a positive way, in a way that says, I want to follow this person. I want to follow them because they know where they're going, and they have a plan, and they're doing things that are wise. But alcohol will take that away from you. Alcohol will take that example, it will take that influence away from you, that influence of positiveness, and it will change it into something that is very uh, negative. this passage goes on to say that there is someone who alcohol is for Alcohol is for the dead and for the dying. Those who have no hope. Those who are, are laid up and it's, they are in pain and misery and suffering. And it says for these people, these people who are dying, who wish to, to forget their poverty and their misery, alcohol and wine are for them. I believe this is saying to us that alcohol certainly has an effect, effect on us. It makes us foolish. It makes us do foolish things. And I think dead or dying is one of the best ways to describe our spiritual situation if we are involved with alcohol. Under the influence of alcohol, we, make very, we can make very serious mistakes that can lead to a, to a spiritual situation of being dead in our sins. And maybe we might completely... We might completely avoid drunkenness, but the life that we live, will it be a life that is glorifying God, that is alive and radiant and shining through with God? Will it be the kind of example that will bring others to Christ? Proverbs 21 and Proverbs 31 are both talking about warnings against alcohol. But there's one other passage I want to look at in Proverbs this morning. There's one other passage that I think we should not ever forget when it comes to alcohol, and that's Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23 is straightforward to the point, and one of my favorite passages to turn to when I I think about alcohol, when I think about conversations about alcohol. Starting in verse 29 of Proverbs 23, it says, "'Who has woe? Who has sorrow?' Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine. Now I think it's important to understand and to consider the phrasing, the words that are used in this passage. It's not talking about a sip of wine. We, gotta, we, we must be honest with ourselves as we study these passages. It's not talking about a drink of alcohol. It's talking about those who linger long on the wine. It's talking about those who would be using wine at a great length, or using alcohol, excuse me, at a great length, and it's going to cause certain things in their lives. It's going to cause woe and sorrow. I think all of us, again, know people who have not only lost their financial uh, well-being, but lost their health. As well. We know people who have drank themselves into a situation where they are, they are reliant on other people just to do simple things around the house. They are reliant on machinery to make sure that their body can process the things that it naturally should be able to do on its own. We know people who have lost loved ones because of their addiction to alcohol. We know people who have lost loved ones because of someone else's addiction to alcohol. Maybe in an accident or in some sort of cause uh, like a drunk driving incident. But we know that alcohol brings with it a whole load of woe and of sorrows. It goes on to say it also brings with it contentions and complaints. It brings with it fighting and bickering. Alcohol works in a way to where it lowers a certain part of our body of uh, vitamin B12 which is important with handling stress the way it works alcohol works is that it takes these vitamins it lowers them down it numbs the parts of the body that are in pain it goes right up into the into our into our core and our brain and it numbs all sorts of decision making skills it numbs the way we focus but then it wears off it wears off and once it's worn off and it's depleted this B12 we don't have what God has given us to, to work with stress. So what ends up happening is we become very irritable. Become very irritable. And the only way to fix that irritation for most people is to go, well, I need to put more alcohol in my system. The alcohol is what was causing me not to feel irritable. So I need to put more in there. And so what we see is this, this cycle that begins. And in each time, that irritability gets a little worse and a little worse. <laughs> and oh, oh, I feel so sorry for the person that crosses me and that low side of that irritability. Because the smallest thing may be a bump as I walk through a crowded room. Maybe, maybe someone says something to me that I just didn't quite take right, is completely overblown, blown out of proportion, and next thing I know, I'm in a fight. Contentions, complainings, these things are magnified under the use of alcohol. And that leads to the next thing that it talks about, wounds without cause, redness of eyes. How many times have we heard of someone who woke up the next morning after a night of drinking and went, well, how did that bruise get there? Maybe worse, how did I get these stitches? Or how did I even get to where I'm at right now? I've known people who have woken up in different counties, not remembering how they got there. Alcohol has a terrible, terrible effect on the body. Whether it be through our actions or through the illnesses that it caused, through the shutting down of the, of the body parts, that God intended to work a certain way that we intentionally poison. We intentionally make toxic when we intake of alcohol. And as I said, this isn't talking about a drink of alcohol. Everyone knows that one drink of alcohol will, will, m- most likely will not result in someone waking up the next morning trying to figure out where, where that bump came from. So we don't have to go and say, though, that this is talking about one drink of alcohol. We can understand that it's talking about alcohol abuse and that it's talking about taking long, uh, being long at lingering on the wine and focusing our our attention when it comes to recreation on alcohol. We can understand that and we can say that because the next verse is going to tell us how to, to stay away from that. And that's verse 31. It says, Do not look. On the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. I don't have to make up things in here to say this is talking about alcohol in general. And if you drink one drink of alcohol, it's going to create woe, sorrow, contentions, complaints, wounds without cause, redness of eyes. I can understand that what it's talking about here is being an alcoholic, is being someone who who drinks a lot of alcohol, not just a little bit. I can understand that. Because then I can understand the next verse that says, here's the way to, re- to remove that from your life. Don't even look at it. Don't even flirt with the path. Because yes, that one drink of alcohol might be the first step on that path. You don't even need to look at that path. You don't even need to take that first step. Stay as far away from it as you can. Why? Because it bites like a serpent. It stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast, saying, They struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I do not feel it. See alcohol has that ability. As I said, to impair our judgment. It makes, us, it makes us think that we're superhuman. It makes us think that I can do I can do anything. As we see the writer here, he says, they they hit me, I didn't even feel it. Struck me, I'm not ill, they didn't hurt me. But even he realizes that it's not a real feeling. He says in the next, in the next verse says, When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? He's talking about a man who is addicted to alcohol. A man who doesn't even realize it. And that's exactly what alcohol does to us. It is a snare. It is a trap. One that Satan loves to use on Christians. To grab hold of us in the smallest of ways. Yeah, that that one drink. It won't cause all these things. But it leads us on that path to get to these places. Proverbs 20 and verse 1 goes on to say, Wine is a mocker and strong drink a a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. It makes a mockery of our lives. It makes us foolish. It makes us the kind of person that people don't look after to go, how can I follow that person to heaven? Look at them. They're a fool. We are given all these different warnings. In the book of Proverbs alone, about wine, about alcohol, and much of our society will say, I will not listen. We can know this. We see it all day, everywhere around us. According to the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, more than 30 percent of Americans, at some time in their lives, has had an alcoholic disorder. More than 30 percent Americans. You know, last uh, last Sunday we talked about suffering, and we talked about an incident that happened with the tsunami in 2004 over in the, in the off the Indian Ocean. We're talking about how 250,000 people died in that tsunami. According to the Alcohol and Substance Abuse Program of UNC at Chapel Hill, nearly 100,000 people die every year from alcohol-related causes. Now, for some reason, when 240,000 people die at one time, that gets our attention. But in just two years, almost that same amount has died, and we pay no attention to that. That does not even register on our radar. But yet that is just how serious the problem is here in America. 100,000 people die a year. In fact, 55% of all incarcerated drug offenses. So those people who have been arrested for drug offenses, 55% of them are arrested because of the drug, not marijuana, not cocaine, because of alcohol alcohol. Alcohol is more dangerous than some illegal drugs like marijuana or ecstasy. and should be classified as such in the legal systems, according to Professor David Nutt at the Bristol University. And he goes on to say that, in fact, half of all ER visits are blamed on alcohol. Alcohol is a drug that has certainly got a grip on our society. Because of the many warnings the Bible gives us, we do well to consider what this means to us, not just as not just for the, the, this society, but what this means to us as Christians. We need to ask ourselves then, is there a role that alcohol can play in the life of a Christian? What does alcohol mean in the life of a Christian? And where I want to start with this is passages passage that we're probably all very well aware of. We're going to talk about things that are specifically condemned in the Bible. Turn to Romans chapter 13. <clears throat> the first thing we're going to look at is drunkenness. In Romans thirteen verses eleven through fourteen, we read and do this knowing the knowing the time that now it excuse me and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed the night is far spent the day is at hand therefore let us cast off the works of darkness let us put on the work the armor of light let us walk properly as in the day not in revelry. And drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Drunkenness here is explicitly condemned, and that's not too big. That's, That's not a surprise to us this morning. We understand that drunkenness is explicitly condemned. But it goes on to say that it's not a part of the armor of light. This is what drunkenness has looked like. Or looked as, in the eyes of the Lord, is looked as the workings of darkness. The workings of darkness. This is something that is done in the, in the nighttime, as it describes it in this passage. But we are not to walk as someone in the darkness. We're to walk as someone in the light. We are to stay away from drunkenness. Galatians 5 goes on to talk more about this. In Galatians chapter 5, in verses 11 through 13, no, I'm sorry, 19 through 21. Galatians 5, 19-21 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not Inherit the kingdom of God. Again, here we see drunkenness explicitly condemned. It's, it's likened up to things like murder, to things like hatred, idolatry, adultery. Drunkenness is placed on the same level as all these other sins. It says that it is not a part of someone who desires to be the kingdom of God. But then it goes on to give us some ideas of how we should act. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So it goes on to say that drunkenness is a, is a behavior. It is an, an attitude. It is something that is completely opposing to the spirit. It is a work of the flesh. And will keep one out of the kingdom of God. And then First Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 5. And verse 11 through 13. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on these this morning because I know we... We understand these pretty well. Verse 11 says, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person, for what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside God judges? Therefore put away from yourself the evil person. Well, this passage shows us Paul, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying in Christ's church, this isn't what he expects to find inside of it. Those who are, are drunkards, this attitude that, or excuse me, this action that I, that I will go out and I will drink and I will drink until I am completely inebriated and I have no control over myself, that is not what I'm looking for in my church, is what Jesus is ultimately saying to us. What Paul is saying to us through inspiration about Jesus' church, excuse <laughs> me. So what we take from this is that drunkenness is condemned. And we understand that. And a lot of the world really does understand that. But as Christians, sometimes we get the attitude, well, I just shouldn't be drunk, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about here. We're not, ultimately on this, we're not talking about drunkenness. We understand that's wrong. But we're talking about alcohol. So as long as I don't get drunk, I'm okay. That's what these passages are telling me, is it not? It's just not to be drunk. See, there's an even more bothersome trend to me today in the Lord's body. This trend where children of God, both young and old, have decided that something like social drinking, the getting together to share a few drinks, whether it be out in a bar, whether it be in the sanctity of someone's home, maybe we're getting together for a Bible study, we're just going to sit around and sip on some wine as we study the Bible together, that there's absolutely nothing wrong with this. What does the Bible say about social drinking? In these passages, Galatians or excuse me, Romans and Galatians both. In both these passages, it talked about drunkenness, and then it used another word that placed right beside drunkenness. In every one of these passages, the NASB calls it carousing. The New King James Version said that it was revelries or reveling. Some translations even just come out and call it what it is. It says it's wild partying. The word that they all derive from is from this word komos. The Greek word komos, and what komos means is a half-drunken party. A party in which the people have come together, often leading to much more sinful activities, where they are not drunk, but they are only half-drunken. They are just, maybe what we would call today, buzzed, feeling pretty good, having a good time. First Peter 4 also talks about this passage, if you want to turn over there. First Peter four, 4 touches on this point quite a bit. And in the first, first couple of verses of 1 Peter 4, it's talking about how we should strive to live. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Verses say that we are called to live no longer for fleshly passions. We are called to live no longer for fleshly lusts or desires. But rather, we are called to live for the will of God. This isn't the only place this idea is brought up. It's brought up in several other places throughout the scripture. That we are to put off the ways of the world. But so oftentimes we cling so close to them. Maybe trying to look towards God. Trying to... to to walk a a new life and follow after Christ, but holding on so very tightly to the old man that we have put away. It's so hard to leave him behind sometimes. Verse 3 goes on to tell us exactly what we are supposed to be doing. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. We've spent enough time doing that. We've spent enough time living as if the world lives. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, it's these, these drinking parties that it discusses, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. If we are to live this new life, it says that we are to abstain from some things. And that is what is mentioned here. Drunkenness again. Carousing, this idea of these half-drunken parties, and drinking parties in general is, is talked about. It says we are to abstain not just from drunkenness, but we are also to abstain from this idea of social drinking. These harmless get-togethers, as many have called them, will prove to be extremely harmful for our soul. The ultimate point that all these passages are making is that there is no place for recreational use of alcohol. In a Christian's life. There's no place for it whatsoever. It doesn't fit into God's will. And we understand that these things are condemned. But what about things that are commanded? What's something that's commanded? Let's look at something, as we talked about before, we look so much sometimes at things we can't do. Let's look at something that we should be doing instead. In Romans 14, we see here that something we should be doing is having a concern for our weaker brethren. Romans 14 and verses 14 through 18, we read, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do, Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Christ died for you. Christ freely gave His life. He was not bribed into it. He didn't do it for His glory, but rather for the glory of the Father, to glorify the church. He died for you. And we focus so much on As we should. Sometimes I ask myself, are we a little too focused on that last part of that? Do we ever stop to consider who else Christ died for? Again, as we've said before, it's not all about me. It's not all about you. Christ died for all of us. And so are we willing to destroy, as this passage asks, are we willing to destroy the one for whom Christ died? died? Are we truly more interested in getting what we want, having things the way we see them best, or are we more interested in things such as righteousness, in things such as peace and joy? Going on in this passage in verse 19, it says, "...therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify one another." Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things, are indeed, excuse me, all things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin. The argument so often time that is made is really, when am I drunk? See, I can, maybe I can have a few beers without getting drunk. I mean, most people say this for the most part, I believe in I I believe that they probably have had a lot of experience with this, and so they know what their limit is. It's certainly true that alcohol affects the body Differently in different types of body types. I imagine that it would take more alcohol for me to become drunk than it would for Holly. So maybe our brothers, or maybe whoever it is that makes these, these uh, arguments, maybe they certainly can have a few beers, they can drink some wine, have some alcohol, and not become drunk. But what these pastors are saying to us is, what about your brothers, what about your sisters who can't? What about those who can't do that? What about your brother who's a recovering alcoholic? What about your brother who has seen the dark pit, been to the bottom of it, struggled and clawed and fought and prayed and and from the help of God made it back out of that pit? What about him? What about those who are easily addicted to things? Those who are weak in self-control. Do we stop and think about those people? Because in essence, what we're saying to them is it's okay, go ahead. Just don't get drunk. Just don't get drunk and you'll be okay. And the fact is, maybe they can't do that. Maybe they will be destroyed by this addiction. They will be sucked back down into alcoholism. And you will have helped them get there. So do we love our brothers and sisters more than our presumable right to drink. That is the question we need to ask ourselves. That is the question that we need to prayerfully consider when we think of our influence regarding alcohol. I hope you can better understand God's will in consuming alcohol this morning. We've talked about things in light of the Proverbs. We've seen that that alcohol can lead to poverty. It can lead to uh, an impaired judgment for those that need to be wise And it certainly can destroy lives. In the teachings of the New Testament, we've seen that there are prohibitions against drunkenness in the New Testament. There are prohibitions against these half-drunken drinking parties, getting together and having a few beers and becoming half-drunk and just feeling buzzed maybe. But then we also see that there are commands to regard the spiritual wellness of our weaker brethren. If you remember, i said in our society today, more than 30%, more than 30% have a drug problem, which excuse me, have an alcohol problem, or will have an alcohol problem in their lives. Do you know what that means? In this room here, there's roughly about 30 of us. It means 10 of us. 10 of us in this room statistically either have had or will have an alcoholic problem in our lives. Do you want a chance being a part of that 30%? Maybe you say, no, I'm strong enough. I'm strong enough. I can handle it. Do you want to chance, one of your brothers or sisters, being a part of that 30%? When you stop and ask yourself, do you consider what other people need, or do you simply consider what you want? As Christians, I think we know the, pos- the, the correct attitude to take on that. Now, it's possible this morning that you've been sitting here and you've been thinking, Kyle, I I think it would be a whole lot easier if you would just quit tiptoeing around this issue, come right on out and say, listen, alcohol's got a lot of bad things that can come from it, and we ought to just condemn it. Condemn alcohol on all levels. It's wrong. And you know what? You're absolutely right. That That would be easier to say, but it wouldn't be better. It wouldn't be better because I believe that whenever we go sticking our our words in the scriptures that just simply aren't there, when we go messing with things that God placed in order like we can do it better, then we're fooling with something that we don't have the right to fool with in the first place. We have seen it through history where Brother Mittenwell decided he would just condemn whatever it was that he thought needed to be condemned and how many souls have been turned away because of that. Same sort of attitude. No, I don't need to come in here and say that the Bible condemns uh, alcohol in every form and every level and every drink of it. I don't have to say that because it doesn't say it. In fact, what it does say is so much better than that. God's Word is so much better than what I think. Because what God says is flirting with alcohol. Even flirting with alcohol is a foolish, unwise thing to do. Maybe in our, in our terms today, we would say flirting with alcohol is just stupid. It's not, it doesn't make any sense. So next time you're confronted with alcohol, or maybe someone who struggles themselves, remember that we should take the dangers of alcohol very, very seriously, and we should be proactive in helping. Helping ourselves and others stay far away from its snare. Not forcing. Not laying down fences where God didn't lay down but helping and leading through our example, through the Scriptures, and through His Word. This morning, I would ask the question, do you, do you have a problem with alcohol? As important as it is to understand the dangers of alcohol, it is equally important to understand our God, to know who our God is. Over in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, we get a great description of who our God is. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, we read that our God is a patient God. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 reminds us that God understands that change is hard, change is difficult, and He is patient. He has given you things that you need to make changes. He has given you a family to help you. A family who desires to know your struggles. Not so we can can pick you out of the crowd and say, that's the one i got to watch. No, so we can flock around you and say, that's the one I need to help. That's the one that I need to lift up. That's the one that, that needs the glory. That's the one that needs our focus. That's the one that needs to be held accountable, like me. I need to be held accountable. Not to whatever my opinion is, but to the perfect will of God that we have recorded for us. But we must also remember that while God is a patient God, His patience is not eternal. Verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? in holy conduct, and in Godliness. On that day, what manner of persons will you be? If you would go ahead and get out your song, bass. In just a moment, we will offer the invitation to be singing number 269, Nothing But the Blood. If on that day you have not yet become a child of God, if you have not come to Christ, through obedience to His will, to know this, that nothing good is waiting for you on that day. But oh, the rejoicing of the chosen few, who, as this song says, have been washed away, their sins away, through the blood of the cross that Jesus shed. Who have been made spotless and who are blameless, not because they were perfect, but because He who was perfect died for them. You could be a part of this chosen few if you would just only accept this invitation that we offer, that God offers to you. An invitation is extended not just to those who, have, who have, are lost to sin, but also to those who have, who have been washed, who have had their sins taken away, but have stumbled. And so oftentimes we let pride keep us from accepting Christ's invitation. Don't let pride keep you from doing so. If there is any way this morning which we can help you, I would implore you, please come forward now as we stand and sing.